There we go. Thank you. So uh, we have done something in honor of veterans and just in, rem in remembrance um, to pray. And we have little soldiers like this. You might have seen that as you came in. It's on the table just as you walk in the front doors. Uh, there are two ammo cans with soldiers in inside of them, and there's a flag up on the wall and, and a little remembrance and, and kind of a prayer prompt uh, plaque right in front of it. I want to read what that, uh, what that says. Uh, that's not the one. It's, I, it's just really important for us to, uh, to understand and know that. And, and I think one of the things we talk about, there's, there's Veterans Day and Armed, Armed Forces Day, and then there's Memorial Day, and those are different. So today we are remembering veterans, right? People who are still living, who we can acknowledge and thank for their service. So here's what, here's what the sign says out there. It says, take a soldier home and place it somewhere to remind you to pray for our men and women who have served our country in the armed forces. Pray thankfully for their service and pray on behalf of the many that struggle to integrate, to find work uh, with physical injuries or with long-term emotional, mental, or other health issues. Pray that they would know Christ as the Savior and treasure that He is. So that's, that's our prayer prompt for you, just as a reminder to take that home and pray. Certainly you can not only pray for veterans when you're prompted, but pray for maybe active duty men and women as well. But what I'd like to do, and I know it's, it's not something they want me to do, but and they're going to stand up and sit down real quick. But if you, if you have served our country in the armed forces, would you please stand so we can say thank you to you? Thank you. Thank you very much for your service, and uh, we appreciate that very much. Um, let's go ahead and, uh, and pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, these among us who have served our country um, for the cause and defense of freedom. God, uh, and whether they were there in times of conflict or in times of peace, we are grateful for the sacrifice they made. God, we do remember today to lift up uh, veterans who, who came back injured, Lord, who came back with uh, ailments or with mental health problems, Lord, because of what they've seen and participated in. And God, we remember to pray for them, that you would, be, you would draw near, that they would feel your presence, and God, that they would see and know Jesus in a time of, of great need. God, may we all continue to remember and be thankful for those who have, who have come before and, and, and stepped up to serve in this way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys again. All right, well, good morning. We're in John chapter 1. If you would turn to John chapter 1 in your Bibles. Uh, how many of you guys were in this room for Sunday school a little while ago? Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, a lot of great notes there. Um, a lot of information to digest. So I take it home and digest it and, and start. One of the comments that Bubba made that I think is so, so accurate is that uh, trying to fit in something that's eternal in an hour is not so easy to do, right? He can't describe the eternal and infinite immutable God in one hour. So he did a great job with those notes. Take them home, read them, uh, just trying to get a grasp and learn more. We're going to certainly talk more about that today as well. Um, we are in John 1. We have begun a series um, called Written So That You Might Believe, and that comes from the theme in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, but these are written, he's talking about the, the words of Christ, right? The, the things that were acknowledged that he did and of the life and work of Jesus, the Gospels. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, that is the theme that we are going to go through, and we're going we're to spend several years, probably a decade, going through the work and life of Jesus Christ. And I said it last week, we'll be doing that in season. So we'll spend a lot of time on it. We'll take a break and go to something else, and we'll come back to, uh, to kind of harmonizing the work and life of Jesus as seen through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we focus in on the Gospel of John. So we're in John 1. 
Uh, we learned last week in Sunday school that John's gospel was unique and different from the other three gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those were the synoptic gospels, and they had kind of their own flavor. I had a, uh, Steve gave me a, a, a paper today that had a teacher and said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you need to see me after class. Then underneath it says, your papers, your, your writings seem oddly similar, right? Because that's what they were. They, they, they're similar, and they worked off of each other. But John, like Bubba said last week, John, he went on his own route, went in his own direction. And obviously, these men are prompted by the Holy Spirit to write these things. Uh, and so we're going to see how John's is unique, and we'll see how, how all of them are u- unique, but also how all of them share some similarities as well. But today, we're going to see the way that John presents Jesus and his divinity, how he, he magnifies Christ. And he, he wants us to see it all through his gospel. He, it's just rich with God's love and God's majesty, but also the divinity of Christ, that, that Christ is to be exalted. John paints a huge picture of who Christ is in this gospel, and it opens the eyes of unbelievers to understand Christ more and, the, uh, and, and to understand the redemption that's offered in Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that. I want to read a little uh, quote from one of the books of uh, the, Chronicle, the Chronicles of Narnia. And I thought it was just, it was appropriate for today, it's appropriate for this series because of, of what, we, what we're coming here to glean. We're coming here to glean more about Jesus, right? A harmony of the Gospels is really for us to look and say, who is Jesus and what did he do and what did it mean? And, and we want to see Jesus grow in, in our view. So the story is there, and, and you see Lucy, who had who'd come back to, um, to Narnia, and uh, it had been a while, and she's staring into Aslan's huge white face, and, and he says, Welcome, child. Aslan, you're bigger, Lucy said. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that is such the truth as we, as we seek and search and to learn more about the Lord Jesus. I, I, I pray that it's our hope that as we work through the Gospels and the life and work of Christ, that we will find Christ bigger and bigger and bigger and more wonderful and more satisfying each time we see Him. Not because He changes, but because our view of Him changes, because we grow and He grows in our hearts and minds. Amen? So we're going to be in John chapter 1, looking at at verses 1 through 18 together. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get right to work into that. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your love. We thank you that you have brought us here together today to worship you and, and God, to glean from your word. And God, today, as we we tackle such a a huge topic, a huge theological doctrine uh, of the Trinity and, and more, God, I, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to be receptive, that you would help our, our hearts and minds be understanding of what your word is communicating to us. We thank you that you do communicate to us. We thank you that you do reveal yourself to us. And God, although some of that may remain a mystery, we know that the things that are true, we can hold as true. So help us today as we look at your word. Convict us of sin if, if there's error in our ways or thinking, God, in our, in, our, in our actions. And God, help us to move into a place of obedience and repentance that we might be conformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Is this on? You guys can hear me okay? Okay. I just can't hear myself. That's okay. All right. So we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 together. We'll read that and we'll break it apart. You ready? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created 
that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we all have received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. All right, that's some deep stuff, isn't it? That's some big, big text. And, and again, these, the first three sermons in this series are kind of setting the table for us, preparing us for where we're about to go. Uh, last week, we talked about the, the written word and, and, the, and the gospels, and, and uh, this week we're looking at this pre-existence of Christ. We're going to see how, how Christ pre-existed, and we're going to set up who this Christ is. So as we go in to look at him, we're going to see through the, the correct lenses of Scripture. So today, uh, the, the sermon is The Greatness of Christ. That's the title. And we're going to look at different aspects of the, his greatness as presented in John's Gospel in chapter 1. The first aspect of his greatness is his eternal nature. So number one is his eternal nature. Now some of you uh, OCD note-takers, we're going to have four little points after underneath this one, okay, before we get to number two. There's four aspects of his eternal nature that I think are important to see, but they're, they're clearly seen in the text today. So let's go back to uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we'll read that together. So about his eternal power, we see it in, in 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So let's, let's unpack that for a minute. Let's see exactly what we see there. Uh, first we see in the beginning was the Word. We're going to talk about the Word. As, as, as God's eternal nature, He's presented as Word. And it was interesting to say that the Greek word for this is logos. It's knowledge. It's, it's reason. It's understanding. And, and it's very much like an abstract kind of view of, of, of almost the divine. And, and, and the Greeks would say it's almost an untouchable. It's an, it's an impersonal force, like in Star Wars. It's just the force, right? And they don't quite have their whole grasp of what it is, but they know that it moves and operates, and, and by its power and understanding, the reason is why we have what we have today. That's, that's how they would kind of unfold that. And, and what we see is when John writes this, John says, in the beginning was the Word. What, what's amazing to this, and, and we have to understand how profound it is to hear this as a Greek and, and see what John does. John does this. He's, he uses logos. In the beginning was the Word, and when he says that, he is presenting to the Greeks the personification of reason and wisdom and knowledge. He's saying, oh, by the way, what you thought was abstract, what is all-knowing, what is knowledge and reason and, and all of the things that hold the universe together, it is personified 
in verse 14, we see it's the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ. John makes no mistake in describing this to the Greeks, that it has a name. It's not an abstract idea. It is Jesus. Now, on the other side, there's the Jewish. You have the Jews and Gentiles, right? So the Gentiles now see a person who is the knowledge. And for the Jews, they understood this too. When you use the word word, the Jews had a lot of history and heritage for that because they wrapped their heart and mind in the Old Testament around God's word. And what we see in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created, right? How did he create? He what? Spoke it into existence. God created by his word. Then he gives to the prophets a word to share. And, and the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, right? So God's word is presented. So Jews are, are, are hungry for this. They know that there's power in the divine word of God. And they, of course, now during this time, they have this Pentateuch. They have the Old Testament writings of prophets and the law. And they, they hold it as, as deep treasure, as, as uh, a stark, stark reason to believe. And John says to them, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So for the Jew, it's not only now the written word or the, the remembered what the word of God and the power. For the Jewish reader, John presents Jesus as the incarnation in the flesh of the divine power and revelation. Jesus was the example and the embodiment of the powerful word of God. That's who Jesus was. This was, this was huge. The logos, the reason he, that Jesus is the communication in the flesh of the Father. So that's the kind of start that off. Now let's look at four attributes we see here, four little attributes of his eternal nature. First is he's pre-existent. Jesus is pre-existent. That's the little A under number one. Look at the text. In the beginning was the Word. In verse two, he was with God in the beginning. Listen, there was never a time when Christ, the Son, didn't exist. When we look at the word was, it's in the Greek, Greek imperfect tense. And in fact, all of verse 1 is in the Greek imperfect tense. And what that indicates to us is it's a continual action being done and accomplished. It wasn't that there wasn't something and now there is something and it's done. It's a continual. The word was is in that Greek imperfect. So I want, us to, I want to reread this to you of how it could properly be translated for us to properly understand this. I don't think John, when he wrote this, was trying to be wishy-washy. I don't think he was trying to be unclear of who Christ is. Here's what, it, here's what it could more accurately say. Essentially, it says that in the beginning, the Word has been continually being the Word. And the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continually God. That's what the tense is indicating here. That there is this continual act in motion of, of the existence and preexistence of God in the form of Father, Son, and Spirit. And we'll see a little bit more of that today. So there's this, this deep pre-existence of God. He always was wasing. That's what someone wrote in one of the commentaries. He was always wasing. It's a continual action. He, he just existed before. There was no point in time where he didn't. Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus is before all things. Jesus is before what things? All things. It didn't say most things, some things. It said all things. And by him, all things hold together. So he is pre-existent. The next little B, we'll see the next one's B, right? The next section here is that there's a Trinitarian relationship. In his eternal nature, there's a Trinitarian relationship. We hit this hard during Sunday school. That'll be available on audio and video for you this week. If you want to check it out again, if, you, if you're here, great. You'll probably want to check it out again anyway. 
right? But there's a lot, lot to be packed into that and unpacked. But the, the, the divine nature, the eternal nature of God or Jesus is Trinitarian in relationship. Going on in verse 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there's Jesus, the Word, and He's with God and God the Father, right? So what does this mean? Well, it literally means that the Word was continually toward God. When that word with, it's toward God, and can more, more accurately be uh, described or translated that, that the Word and God were face-to-face with one another. They were looking at each other in the face, face-to-face. There was an eternal relationship, an enduring relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and we'll see God the Holy Spirit as well. There was this perfect unity as God. And Bubba mentioned that, that and I'll, I'll mention in a while, when, when God creates, He created us to be an object of His love. But before He created us, there was an object of His love already. The Father had, it was, a Father's uh, love was put on Jesus and the Spirit, the Spirit's on the Father and Jesus, and so on and so forth. That they had this perfect unity and perfect love and perfect relationship within themselves that they were all sufficient. They didn't need anything else. They were sufficient in, in and of themselves, but still one God. They're Trinitarian in nature. I want you to turn, keep your, your finger here, turn to Genesis chapter 1. should be a little easier to get to. It's the very first book of the Bible, very first verse of the first book of the Bible. If you can't find it, you might be in the index or the table of contents. Genesis chapter 1. Interestingly enough, people think that, that if you say, what's the earliest account of anything divine or of God or of the Bible? People say, well, it's Genesis, right? Genesis 1.1. No, that's not right. John 1.1 is the earliest we find. Why? Because God in Jesus is pre-existent. They, he pre-exists creation before the actual beginning where it started. There was eternality with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So John is telling us that really in the beginning, which is eternal, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this a little more in detail. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, and this word for God is Elohim. It is plural. Interestingly enough, it's plural. We, we call God plural because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. So we see this plurality. We see, we see, and we'll see later too, in creation we see that Jesus was there and nothing that's been created was created without him. So he was at creation. And we see in the beginning God created. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and then we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Who was present? God in his Trinitarian form was present at creation. You think about how he created it. He decided to create mankind, right? And what did he say? He said, let us create man in our image. He wasn't talking to the angels. He was talking to himself in the form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. There's a plurality of God. There's a Trinitarian uh, view of God, a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are perfect in unity as God. They are all God, but they are not each other. One of the views we, we talked about during Sunday school and I talked about last service is this modalistic view where, where some people think, okay, yeah, there's God, and then He's the Son, and then God, he's, the, he's the Father, and God's the Spirit. And they think He's like Superman, right? He, he has the phone booth, and He runs in there as a Father, and He changes His clothes, and He steps out as Jesus. He's like, yeah, I'm Jesus. I'll die. Oh, I'll get back in and close it. Oh, now I'm the Holy Spirit. And He just keeps changing forms to be something that that he's needed at, this, at a certain time. But we see throughout Scripture, and one of the great examples was this morning during Sunday school, you see at the baptism of Jesus Christ, there was no phone booth. 
And you have the Son in the water being baptized and the Father speaking in His presence from heaven through the clouds. And then what do you have? The Holy Spirit descending on Christ like a dove. It's all happening at the same time. See, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct from each other and unique from each other, but they are still all one, and they make up the one true God. Now, does that blow your mind? Say yes, please, yes. It's gone. It's not supposed to totally make sense. You know, we we talked about uh, trying to get some analogies. I've heard the analogy like, oh, the Trinity, I understand the Trinity. It's like an egg. First off, oh, really, you understand the Trinity? Really? Because that's pretty hard to understand. We've been wondering about it since it was ever brought up. So it's like an egg, right? The egg has a shell, and it has a a white, and it has a yolk. But it's still one egg. Okay, it's going to fall apart somewhere. Or it's like water. Someone says it's like water. Water can exist in three forms, right? It can exist in a solid, in a liquid, and a gas. I once, here's, here's how it started falling apart for me. Okay, you take that solid out. Can it exist all three at the same time? Oh, I don't think so, right? You put that solid in a pot on the stove, and eventually it gets hot enough, it's going to melt, right? There's no more, no more ice there involved. And now that the temperature is, is rising and there's no more ice involved, it's going to rise to a point of boiling, and what's going to happen? It's going to steam and become a gas. And if you leave it on that, on that long enough, what's going to happen? All the water, all the fluid, all the liquid is going to become a gas. There is no more water, liquid, and there's no, certainly no more solid. The solid's been gone for a while. And it might burn the pot, right? So you ha- you, it doesn't do it justice, right? All we know is that there's one God showing himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus, the Son, is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not Jesus. They're distinct in that. And we, we've seen that revealed, and we can trust that. And it's all throughout Scripture. It's littered throughout Scripture. So there's a Trinitarian relationship with His eternal uh, nature. But see, the third thing in His eternal nature, that He, Jesus, is God. We see the greatness of Christ, and we see His eternal nature what we're seeing is that he, in fact, is God. It's not just that he's in a Trinitarian relationship. It's not that he just kind of is there with God and some kind of created being. He is eternally God. It says the Word was God. The Word was continually God. We said that earlier, right? So it says right there very clearly the Word was God. We see that, that uh, Jesus was God in essence and in character He was God in every way, although he was a separate person from God, the Father, and God, the Spirit. It's okay for this to be a mystery, by the way. It's okay for this to be a mystery because we shouldn't be able to understand God fully. He is God, and his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the moment that you and I can figure out God, he is no longer God. It's okay for this to be a mystery. Colossians 1.16 says about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. Okay, you haven't seen God. When you see Jesus, you've seen God. Philippians 2.6, talking about Jesus Christ who existing in the form of God. So before he became flesh, before he came to earth and incarnate, he existed as the Son, Jesus Christ. And existing as the Son, Jesus Christ, he existed or was existing in the form of God. And, and, and while he existed in the form of God, Philippians says he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited on his journey to become a human. It's like, I'm not going to exploit that. I'm going I'm to be fully God, but I'm also going to be fully man. And we'll talk about that last, uh, next week, what, that, what the implications of that are. 
Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says, be careful. Now, this is where, for you and I. Be careful. And Paul's urging the, Col- the church at Coloss to say, don't be buying into these lies or these other explanations. Don't be kind of whisked away by some, some sweet talk of somebody. Get it right. Understand it clearly. He says, don't, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition or based on the, on the elements of this world rather than on Christ. So we can go out and hear all kinds of things that people will say about Jesus. And all kinds of ways they'll explain about how Jesus maybe isn't God or kind of God, but, he's, but God's really God and there's no trinity. We, we can have all kinds of people try to explain those away. And many world religions and cults have risen under those goals to try to explain away the divinity of Jesus Christ or the trinity of God. Be careful that no one takes you captive through those things rather than basing your mind and, and letting Christ keep your mind captive. For, in verse 9, it says, For the entire fullness of of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no excuse here. There's no doubt here. Jesus is God. Scripture is full of other examples, and maybe you weren't here for the Sunday school and got the notes. If you want to, these should be on the lobby. Pick this up when you go. This is what was presented at Sunday school. You can still read it and get a lot out of it. A lot of great references there uh, for your benefit. Um, but really, there, there's no excuse. When we look at the Scripture, there's no excuse to not see Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. Scripture's full of other examples. Uh, and Jesus himself repeatedly assumed the divine name, I am. That was a name started by God at the burning bush with Moses. Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? What, what's your name? And God says, tell them I am. And that's Yahweh. That's, that's the greatest name of God, Yahweh sent me. So when Jesus starts talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders and, and teaching that, that I am the resurrection and the life, He's saying, I am. And when, when they, he's asked during kind of trial, are you God? Are, are you, is this who you, I am? He uses that over and over, not by mistake. He's not trying to put a play on words or be unclear. He is God. In fact, when uh, Jeremiah prophesied about the Messiah, he, he said, the Messiah will be named, the Lord is my righteousness. And we see that. We have a righteousness that we can have from Jesus because of what he's done on the cross for us. He says, the Messiah is going to be the Lord is my righteousness. The one to come is the Lord is my righteousness. You know what he, that word Lord is? Yahweh. No way. Yahweh. He's saying, listen, Messiah is going to come, and it's going to be Yahweh. It's not, there's no, no mixing things up here. This is what the Bible is saying. This is what Jesus says about himself. When Thomas, his disciple, addressed him, so Jesus had died and risen and Thomas couldn't believe it, and he wouldn't believe that he was risen. He says, unless I poke my hands in his hands, right, and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus comes up and says, hey, Thomas. And what does he say? And he says, he offers, go, go ahead and touch. And he doesn't even have to. He says, my Lord and my God to Jesus. He calls him my Lord and my God. And what does Jesus do? Well, Thomas, whoa, no, no, don't say that. I'm not. I'm. He said, that's right. And he praised him for his faith in the Lord and God, Jesus Christ. In fact, it was this so-called blasphemy and heresy of Jesus calling himself the Messiah, saying that he was God that got him put on the cross and crucified. Stop saying you're the Messiah. Stop saying that you're the one that can forgive sins. That's heresy. That's blasphemy. And Jesus is like, I am. And they crucified him. And for a moment, they thought they had won. Satan thought 
He had won. But three days later, Jesus rose victoriously saying, told you so. I'm God. I'm God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus Christ, not just the sunshine, right? The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. This is who Jesus is saying He is. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. The last little section underneath this one is eternal nature is He is creator. We see Him as creator. Look at verse 3 of of chapter 1. All things were created through Him. Talking about Jesus. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. You know what this says? Jesus is not a created being. Because not one thing, not one created thing has been created without Jesus creating it. He could not have created Himself. Jesus is creator and shares that with the Father and the Spirit. He was not created. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So not only did He create, was He the agent of creation, the agent and expression of God's Word in speaking into existence, but it was also created for Him, and He's to be exalted because of that. Revelation 4.11, we see the Son exalted, <coughs> seated on the, on the throne next to the Father, and it, it says this about Him. It says, our, the, the, there are people worshiping Him, say, our Lord and God, to Jesus, like Thomas, right? Our Lord and God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because You have created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. Jesus was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. And since not one thing has been created without Him, He is not a created thing. Many, many world religions want to say this. There are religions and cults that say, yeah, Jesus is not God. He's, he's, he's just God's agent. He's a good man that really was like the supreme man. Or He's an angel that, that kind of has risen a little more. Or he became something that he used to be a man, and now he's, he's divine. He is pre-existent. He is eternal. He is the creator. He has existed in all eternity as part of the triune Godhead. I want us to understand something and pause right now. We're done with number one, but here's, here's the implications for that. Here's the application for that. The world would like to take what we've seen here today and dismiss it. And, and I'm okay with that, as long as you own that. Here's what I mean. Jesus said he was God. Jesus created the world. Jesus said that only he can forgive sins. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus said that what he did on the cross was sufficient for you and I to be forgiven, and by his blood we can be forgiven. And he rose from dead, proving that he wasn't just a good person, that he was actually God, that he conquered not only sin, he conquered death, and that you and I could live because Christ lives. All these implications about who Christ is are revealed in Scripture. Here's what we can't say. Oh, he was just a good teacher. 
and, and I, I need you to, to own it. If you don't want to believe what Jesus said, then say it. He is a liar. And not a good teacher. If that's what Jesus taught, and that's what we see, that's the historicity of Jesus. We see it in Scripture. This is what Jesus taught. If this is what Jesus taught and said about himself, he cannot be a good teacher unless he was telling the truth about himself, unless he's really God. So for you and I, here's the application. You have three deci- one of three decisions to make. Either Jesus is a liar. So you, that's a camp people can go in and can, can sit, sit in right there. He's a liar. What he said was absolutely false. It was wrong. I can't believe he'd say such horrendous lies. He's certainly not good because he's such a big liar. He fooled so many people. A billion people claim him as, as Savior on the, on the planet. Look how many people he's fooled. He is a liar and evil. That's the position. Second position. He just doesn't have a clue what he's saying. He is crazy. He is out of his mind. And he's not a good teacher. I'm not going to follow a crazy person right, to be taught by. He's crazy. That, that what he said was, was just, wow, you are spouting off some crazy things for attention, Jesus. In fact, there are times in the Bible where you see his family going to Jesus saying, come on, we think you're crazy. Let's go to the nut house and get checked out. Because it's kind of crazy what he's talking about. But over and over he proved through his wisdom and through his power and through his ability and through rising from the dead that he is exactly who he said he was. So he is either a liar. You can embrace him as a liar. You can embrace him as a lunatic, or he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those are the only three options for Jesus. That's it. So stop being wishy-washy about, oh, he's just a good teacher, he's a prophet. No, he wasn't. He said these things, and it looked good, but if it's true, he's God. If it's not true, he's not good. He's Lord. He is God in the flesh. And John sets this up. With no mistake, it is inexcusable. Again, it is inexcusable for us to come away with a different conclusion about who Jesus is from how he's been revealed in the scriptures and how he's revealed himself to us. He is God. And again, these things are written so that you and I might what? Believe, and that by believing we would have life in his name, Jesus' name. All right, let's go on. Number two, the greatness of Christ is seen in his love. We see the greatness of Christ in his love. Back to John chapter 1. We're looking at verses 4 through 13. It says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Isn't that amazing? So God, and we'll stop right there for a minute. We'll break the other part down in a second. God, God in his infinite glory and power, and says, says, looks at his creation, the object of his love, and says, I'm going to show thy greatness in Christ through my love for humanity. So I'm going to send my son down. I'm going to send the son down so that people could be redeemed that people could be rescued and saved. And it, it says, he was sent, right? The light shines in the darkness. And there's a man sent from God to, to witness or testify about the light. It's interesting about the light, the, as the light shines, it dispels all darkness. It's amazing what a little candle will do in a dark place, right? 
just dispels. Any crack, any crevice will let light shine through. Light just heads straight in to darkness and dispels the darkness. Unless you're blind. The darkness, it said, didn't overcome it. I want you to understand this, that, that since the fall of Satan, there has been a battle between Satan and Jesus. Satan, Satan wanting to, Jesus creating, and Satan, Satan wanted to counterfeit what God has created. And then with that, there's a lie that's presented. But Satan has continually tried to battle and to ex- extingu- extinguish the light. He wants to snuff out the light of Jesus Christ. And he thought he had won, right? He has tried multiple ways, many times throughout all of history. And then the cross came, right? And Jesus died and everything got what? Dark. And Satan's like, yes! But we see in John, guess what? The light overcomes. The darkness cannot overcome the light. And what do we see three days later? The light shining more brilliantly and more glorious than it ever had finally defeated death once and for all. And there's no way Satan is going to defeat the light. God wins. He sends this light out of love into the world so that you and I could see and be exposed in the darkness of our own heart. That we could see our need for redemption and see our need for forgiveness, see our need to repent and turn in humility toward Jesus and what he offers. He is the light. Don't don't grab anything else and drag it along with you. Don't grab any other darkness and say, Jesus, let's take this with. He's like, no, I have to illuminate that for what it is. Get rid of it. Come to me, come to the light, and be changed forever. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. They're looking for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah, but they fill themselves up with rules and works righteousness. They said, oh, it must not be him. That's not what, that's really, it was interpreted wrong. We like our life the way it is. Let's just keep earning our way. They did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a big mistake. People rejected Jesus Christ. People still reject Jesus Christ today. They don't recognize him, and then they see him, and they they reject him. Verse 12. And verse 12, interestingly enough, in this literature, in this prologue, it's it's built up as the as the pinnacle or the climax of this entire passage. It's the what's the thing that everything kind of goes towards and everything's built on afterwards. It's almost like the PB and J in the sandwich, right? It's the good stuff in the middle. You put a piece of bread and a piece of bread, and the good stuff in the middle is what you want. That's what this is, verse 12. This is what could sum up the so that, right? Look at this, verse 12. But to all who did receive him. He gave them to the right to be children of God, that those uh, who would believe in his name. This is, this is what we're, that we're talking about, becoming children of God. That God in his eternal nature came, an infinite eternal nature came into human history in his great love for us to shine a light in the darkness and say, you need a Savior and you have one in Jesus and you can be my child. That's what this is all about. It's written that you might believe, and by believing you might have life in his name, that we would be children of God. Children, it says, not, who are not born of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. There's a new birth that has to happen. Something new has to occur, and this happens in the greatness of Christ seen in his love for us. But people still reject. People still doubt. People still don't see the light, and that's because their hearts are blind and dark. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, their God, or the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, we pray. We pray for each other. We pray for family members. We pray for friends who are dark in their hearts and their, in their minds and their understanding, who are blinded in their own hearts, not seeing the light of Christ. We pray that the, the soil of their heart would be tilled and softened and open to receive the seed, the word of God, the gospel, that they would respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do people not see the light? Because they have their eyes closed. Light dispels darkness until you cover your eyes. Turn to Ephesians with me. Stay here, but turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in the book of John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Chapter 2. Continue to see and build up the greatness of Christ in his love, showing us his love here. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler or power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Just like we said a minute ago, you're blind, you're doing your own thing. He says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. Verse 4. You know I love these conjunctions, right? But God. That's, that's what we have here in John 1, is a big but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. See, God has pursued us. And God has presented Christ in His glory and splendor and eternality to us as a love offering that we could see the darkness of our heart and we could understand that we have a need for Him. We could understand that the love He poured out for us was a love that was poured out on a cross that we deserve to be on. But He took it willingly upon Himself that we might have life. In his great love, he went to the cross that through faith in Christ, we could become children of God. Not children under wrath, but children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. That's the great love the Father has given us, that we have that opportunity and the right to become children of God. And how does it happen? We believe plus receive equals become. That's our verse 12. We believe and we receive that for ourselves. Finally, number three, we see the greatness of Christ is His grace. It's His grace. Let's look at the, the rest of the verses back to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We'll finish up. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, the one, uh, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Very important, by the way. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him to us. 
beautiful passage here, beautiful description of the grace coming. But the grace, it said, came from his fullness. What does that mean? It's who he is. He's God. He's God in the flesh. He's fully God, fully man. And out of his fullness, only out of his fullness, can grace and truth come for you and I. I want you to, to think about how this works together. I'm going to give you some grace and truth thoughts because here's the two camps. One side says, well, it's all about grace. It's all about grace, all about grace. It's just grace upon grace upon grace, which it, it is, but there's more. Well, and, and that side would say, love wins. It doesn't matter what we do. God's going to sort it out at the end. All roads lead to God. No, they don't. But that's what grace upon grace upon grace would say. But he in his fullness came full of both grace and what? truth. The other side would be just, just truth alone. And truth aloneers are like, listen, it, here it is. It's written down. It's black and white. We just got to do it. We're going to punch through. We're going we're gonna to earn our way. We're going to be good enough. We're going to earn, earn, earn. No need for grace. We can get it done ourselves. No, you can't. You will never earn enough. You'll never do enough. You'll never outdo your own sin with your own good works. They have to be erased, not just outweighed. So both truth and grace on their own don't account for much. So when Jesus came, he came full of both grace and truth. And he, here's how that works together. Grace. God created us to be with him and to be objects of his love, to receive his love. Isn't that gracious? It's amazing. We messed it up. Truth. We sinned. And we fell short of God's glory. We rebelled against God and separated ourselves from God forever because of our sin and rebellion. That's the truth. There's condemnation. We are children under wrath in that truth. Yes, God still loves us. God still made us to be objects of his love. So we have the next part is no more grace. We had grace. We have truth. Now we have more grace. Christ came to pay the penalty that you owed and that I owed. That he put himself on that cross and poured himself out as a propitiation, as a substitute for you and I, that we could be redeemed, paid for in full. Amen? Grace. That's grace that he poured out on us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Truth, that when we believe and receive Christ as Savior, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that we have a, a peace in him and a hope in him because of the truth of what he's accomplished for us. And that kind of sounds like grace and truth to me. And then more grace. Because of him, we can be with him forever and be the objects of his love eternally. That's how grace and truth continue to work together. You can't take one without the other and have a full picture of anything. Uh, Romans 5, I want to read part of Romans 5, chapter 19, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Give you this picture again. Just through one man's disobedience, we're talking about Adam, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, right? He sinned and sin into the world, death into the world. We are cursed by that. It says, so also through one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. The law said, hey, I'm going to show you more and more laws and give you more and more rules because you can't keep it. And the minute you think you can, there's another rule you found that you didn't follow. It's going to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
just grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And listen, for you and I, I, you need to understand something. When it comes to his love, you can either reject it or receive it. He came into the world with his light and his love shining to everyone who would want to believe. And, and he gave them the right to be children of God if they would believe and receive him as Savior. When it comes to his love, you can reject that. Maybe you've been rejecting him too long. It's time to receive it. When it comes to his grace, here's what we need to understand. That there is more than enough grace. There is more than enough grace to cover your sins and to give you new life. Say this. Say, say more than enough grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. There's more than enough to cover your sins and give you new life. So when we talk about John chapter 1 and, and John present, presents his gospel to us, we present and see the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's expressed in, in his eternal nature. It's expressed in his, his great love for us and ex, it's expressed in the fullness of grace and truth that he presents to us. And listen, these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word. And not only the written word that we have, but the the Word became flesh, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Logos, the embodiment, the personification of all truth, all knowledge, all wisdom and power, that you are the agent of God's Word. Thank you for drawing us towards you. Thank you for shining your light into the darkness of our sin and our despair and for illuminating us with hope and love and light in Christ. And thank you for the grace that you've given us, the grace upon grace upon grace which continues to cover more than enough. We are grateful for Jesus. And Father, we know it, it is, as we've seen the, seen the Word today and seen the Scriptures revealed to us, it is inexcusable to think of anything less of Jesus than divine and eternal, that He is God. We are thankful for our Savior, our Lord and our God, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.